Our scripture reading today comes from Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you, because of the Lord your God, and of the Holy One of Israel." For he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, So are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, bringing forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that what goes out of my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar should come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. The word of the Lord. Well, as I have mentioned several times up to this point, uh, it is the third Sunday of Advent, the Sunday uh, where we light the candle of joy and we celebrate joy despite what the children were showing you. Um, this is <laughs> was more of the Sunday of awkward, uh, awkwardness, uh, but no, it's the Sunday of joy. And so I hope that you've noticed that theme. It's running throughout, um, throughout the music and, and I hope that you hear the theme of joy in this sermon, because if there is anything that this world could use more of, it is joy. And joy, it it pervades our passage of scripture this morning. Our text comes from Isaiah 55, and and it's the end of this section that some scholars label the book of comfort, because it begins in, this section begins in Isaiah chapter 40 with the words, comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. And so, well, as kind of the beginning of Isaiah is really a lot of oracles of judgment. Bad things are going to happen. These are words to people who have been through a lot. They've been through the ringer. And these are Isaiah's words. They are are prophetic words addressed to a community of exiles. So a community of people who have been taken away from their homes. They've been sent into Babylon and and they've been gone for so long that they've almost forgotten what home is. Like, And Isaiah is telling them that now, at long last, the time for homecoming is near. And so as we explore the many 
dimensions of joy that we see in this passage. We're going to focus on, on three things that, that run throughout it. One is the invitation to a feast. And the second thing is the identity of the host. And the third thing is the nature of the celebration. So first, the invitation to the feast. Second, the identity of the host, the one throwing the party. And lastly, the nature of this celebration. What's it like? All right, so first, the invitation to celebrate. And the first words of the passage uh, in our English translation is, come. You know, come. But actually, it's not. If you were to read the King James version of our passage, it begins, Ho, all ye who thirsteth, come ye to the waters. Ho, all ye who thirsteth, thirsteth, come ye to the waters. Now, obviously, we cannot use the word ho to start a modern translation of a biblical passage anymore. But what the King James Version is doing is just basically transliterating a Hebrew word, meaning putting English letters around a Hebrew word. And that Hebrew word is Hoi! And hoi isn't so much a word as it is a sound, a, 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 an exclamation. And it's the kind of sound that, that means very different things depending on the context. So hoi is one of those words where you could go, hoi. And it means, oh gosh, things are really bad. I got something really bad I need to tell you. Or it could be like here, where it means, hoi! Oh yeah! Hat tip to the, uh, the Kool-Aid man. And so it's a sound that is, is meant to grab your attention because there is some news that is coming that is emotionally significant. It's, it's charged information. It's really either bad news or some awesome great news that I can't wait to share with you. And so the prophet is saying, Hoi, pay attention. If you are thirsty, have I got news for you? And the thirsty being addressed here, of course, are, are not people who literally need water. Water is a symbol. It's, it's a metaphor for something much greater. And it raises this question of what is it like to thirst? And to be thirsty is to have the pain, experience the pain of an unmet desire. To thirst is, is to experience the pain when you have this unfulfilled longing. The desire of the exiles was to return home. They thirsted to be back in their homeland, back amongst their people, back worshiping their God in their temple. In Babylon, they thirsted for home and everything that that meant, that came along with that. But we too know what it's like to be thirsty, to have the pain of unmet longings deep in our hearts. We thirst for relationships that have broken down or, or become distant to be fixed. We thirst to be known and to be loved just as we are. We thirst to be able to leave behind self-destructive thoughts and, and self-defeating tendencies. We thirst to feel healthy again. We thirst to get things right just this one time. We, we thirst for a day when we can log on and not be inundated with bad news or a time when we can open our mailboxes and not be faced with another debt that we've got to sort of shift money around to pay. We know what it is to thirst. To thirst for a relationship with God that isn't based on guilt or fear or disappointment, but grace. We are a thirsty 
people. And the good news is that Isaiah says, if you are thirsty, I have got news. I have got an invitation that you need to hear. And actually what Isaiah is saying, it's not so much an invitation as it is like uh, uh, we, you know, use this expression sometimes, you voluntold someone to do that, you know? So it's like, well, who would like to, you know, who would like to read this morning? And I'm like, oh, Senta, how about you? You know, you're, you're being voluntold to do something. He's invitolding. Isaiah is invitolding the exile, exiles this morning, right? He's saying, I've got an invitation, but actually it's not an invitation. It's more like a command because all of the verbs are, are these imperatives. And so the prophet says, if you're thirsty, come here. Come to the waters. Come and drink. You who have this pain of unmet desire deep down inside of you, come here because God is going to fulfill it. And one of the beautiful things about Scripture, and we see it all throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, is that when the authors need an image, when they're searching for an image, how do I describe what it's like to live in God's abundant love? The best image they can come up with, the best metaphor, the best word picture is a feast. A feast is the best image that we have of heaven. A feast is the best metaphor for what it's like to live in God's kingdom. And so the invitation is issued to everyone who thirsts. But look what's provided. It's not just water, right? If you're thirsty, you want water, but it's better than that. There's wine and milk and bread too. And the best part of all is it's all provided Free of charge. There's no cost. You can just come and eat. There's no commercial exchange taking place. We're used to that. There's no quid pro quo. All you have to do is come to the banquet and eat your fill. And this image of, of feasting is especially meaningful this time of year. Because this is, this is the time of year for feasting. We all know that come January 1st, our pants are going to fit a little bit tighter. Um, and the gyms, at least for that first week, are going to be a little fuller because people have been feasting. They've been celebrating. I read recently from what I believe is a reputable source uh, that Americans, the average American consumes 4,500 calories at their Thanksgiving dinner. That's a lot of calories, you know? Out of a 2,000, uh, you know, I don't know what the nutritionists say, but you say 2,000, that's two and a half times. Or two and a quarter times or something like that. That's a lot of calories. But when you think of this time of year, we, we think really joyfully about the feasts that we get to celebrate. We can think of our Christmas favorites. And for me, my, my, my favorite feast this time of year when I was growing up, it was always eating these wonderful sweets that we would make at home. Krumkaka, gingerbread, and spritz, which are these little German sugar cookies that are so good. And you can just eat the dough. Um, you can just, just, just eat so much dough. And there's nothing like it when you're a kid and you've eaten these cookies and you've eaten this dough and your stomach and your head hurt. <laughs> but they hurt so good. And really at their hearts, feasts are not about gluttony, just you know, gorging yourself and shoving as much food into your mouth as possible. Uh, feasts are about celebrating abundance. Celebrating uh, the abundant provision of God. They're about enjoying not just good food, but good people and good company and good family and good friendships. Those are all the ingredients that go into making a joyous feast. 
celebrating and delighting in God's abundant provision with the people God has graciously placed in our lives. That's, that's a feast. At Thanksgiving, you know, we celebrate, we feast because we're thankful for a lot of things. And at Christmas, we, we celebrate and feast the miracle of the incarnation. We go, those are, are suitable occasions for eating and drinking and making merry. And what's being celebrated through feasting in Isaiah 55, it, the, the clue is right there in verse 3. It says, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. So it's this everlasting relationship between God and God's people. It's akin to a kind of wedding feast. A celebration of God's everlasting commitment to his people through the family of David. And we as Christians believe that this everlasting relationship between God and his people reaches its full expression in the life, death, resurrection, and rule of great David's greater son, Jesus the Christ. And we celebrate and we rejoice and we feast because in Jesus Christ, heaven came down to earth and earth was brought up to heaven and God came into our exile. He himself went off into the far country in order to bring us prodigals home. And so the invitation in Advent is to come to Jesus, to trust in Jesus, to listen to Jesus, to seek Jesus, to be nourished by Jesus, because he alone can satisfy the deepest unmet desires of our souls. He can heal our hearts and our bodies. He can make our relationships right. He provides our lives with meaning and purpose. So Christ is the founder of this feast which he has prepared for us, and which we're soon to eat. And so this leads us to a transition between um, the invitation to the feast and the identity of the host. Because there's something curious about this invitation. It says, And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk, without money and without price. So which is it? Is it free, or do we have to buy it. And if it's free and you don't have any money, how could it be possible to buy anything? And here's the great truth that we see in this passage that while it's free to us, it cost God something. Everything, really. Jesus is the one who paid the price at the cost of his own life. There was an early Christian teacher named Ambrose of Milan, and he, he was actually uh, a very famous preacher and teacher, and he was uh, St. Augustine, his teacher. And he said that the reason that all of this is free is that the cost has already been paid by Christ. We eat for free, Ambrose said, because Jesus paid with his own body and blood, which is what he feeds us with when we feast with him at his table. One of the unique things we do at, at this church, at least as a Protestant church, is, is we take communion each and every Sunday. And why do we do that? One of the reasons that we do that is so that we never forget that we are a feasting people. A people whose hunger is satisfied and whose thirst is slaked by eating the bread of life and drinking the cup of salvation. And so we take communion every Sunday so that we never forget that we're supposed to be a feasting people and we never forget that, that there is a cost associated with this. And who paid the price? Right, Grace is free to us. 
free. But God paid the ultimate price for us because he loves us that much, which is another reason to celebrate and rejoice. So God invites us to the feast. He paid for the feast. He himself is the one we're feasting upon, which leads us to the second thing I want us to pay attention to in this passage, and it's what it teaches us about the identity of the host. And we, re- we learn really two essential things about God in this passage. And the first we see in verses 8 and 9 where it says, For my thoughts are your, not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So the first and absolutely essential truth about God that we learn from this passage is that God isn't like us. In the words of the theologians, God is holy other. And so God is not just some big version of humanity that we project up onto the sky. That's how we slide into thinking about God a lot of times if we're not careful. You know, God is just like another human being, but to the nth degree. God isn't, you know, quantitatively different from a human being. So, you know, if we're powerful, then God must be really powerful. And if we love someone, then God must really love them. God's power, God's love, God's mercy, everything about God is is qualitatively different than us. And this is frustrating for us because we, we would like a God who's a little bit more manageable, like us, controllable, like an idol. The kind of God who, who we can depend on to do the things that we want God to do when we want God to do them. That would be nice for many of us. But we see in Isaiah 55 that we cannot put God in a box. Only God can do that. And God doesn't put himself in a box. When God contains and and constrains himself, it's in a manger in Bethlehem. And God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our our thoughts. We would not have thought to do things the way that God decided to do them. Would we have thought of the Incarnation? Of the life of Jesus? Would we have thought of this good news about the kingdom of God? Would we have thought of the cross and the tomb of the Holy Spirit of of the church? We would not have made this stuff up if we had wanted to. But the wonderful thing and the frustrating thing that we've got to wrap our minds around is that God is God and we are not. That God's timing is not always our timing. That God's plans are not always our plans. And that God's way of doing things is not our way of doing things. We'd like God to be predictable, easy to understand, easy to control. But fortunately for us, God will not oblige. And so the first truth about God is that God is not like us. And while that might be frustrating, it's ultimately freeing. Because we can stop trying to do God's job for him. We can let God be God and you can be you. That's the first thing we learned about God's identity. The next thing we learn about God is that God is the one who sends his word to accomplish his purposes. You see that right in verses 10 and 11. It says, as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. 
knowing your job description is really helpful, right? Your title only tells you so much. I'm a pastor, okay? But what exactly does that mean that I do? And when I was a youth pastor in California, I once had an intern, an intern, mind you, who was working for me, asked me, do you get paid uh, uh, for what you do? Is this your job? And I was like, no, I just volunteer. I'm just a full-time volunteer. Joe, Joe Dutter, that was, oh, yeah, he was working for me. Uh, and, 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 uh, and, and he said he was wondering what my job was and if I got paid to do it. And so we get a title and we go, what exactly does that mean? And I know that I have a job description floating around somewhere out there, but it, it includes all this stuff, you know, preaching, teaching, administering the sacraments, uh, or another way to say it is I am a steward of the mysteries of God, which sounds a lot more impressive. Um, uh, you know, caring for the poor and the sick, praying, discipling, developing leaders, helping set mission, vision, and values, overseeing the overall mission, ministry, and life of the congregation. And then there's the stuff that's like not in the job description, like fixing the internet uh, and updating the website and picking up the cans of natty ice that occasionally get thrown into the bushes outside of the church. Not by me, by the way. Those go right in the recycling when I do them. Um, you know, all the other stuff that falls under those labels, of, you know, miscellaneous other duties as, as they arrive. But when you know what your job description is, you, you can... Know what your role is, where your role ends and someone else begins, what you're supposed to do, what they're supposed to do. And we've all been in situations where there's no sort of clarity around job descriptions. And so this leads to all sort of confusion and this awkward, delicate dance that you try to do with people. And, and the ball gets dropped sometimes and frustrations build and misunderstandings happen. Knowing what you do, what exactly it is you do, what you're supposed to do is a wonderful thing. It's a great scene uh, in the movie Office Space, which is truly, I think, one of the defining films of the last 20 years. I'll stand on that. Um, and they bring in these consultants who call the employees into this conference from one by one, and, 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 they, and they ask them, they say, what would you say it is that you do here? And that is one of the scariest questions that you can get asked. It's one of the most demoralizing, or it can be one of the most liberating and empowering questions that someone asks you, what is it that you do here? Happy is the person who knows what their job is and does it. And so here we get the job description. God gives the job description for God's word. It's, it's akin to the job that's done by the rain and the snow. It does three things. It brings life to dead things, growth to immature things, and maturity to growing things. And so even though in this passage, you know, the word is clearly referring to this prophetic uh, oracle that God is delivering to the exiles through Isaiah, we are allowed to expand that definition beyond the confines of this passage. All scripture is inspired, it's, it's breathed by God. And so we know that when, when, when God sends out God's word, there's work for it to do. And the first job of God's word is to bring life to death. It's like the water that falls on the seed that's buried in the ground. Without the water coming to that, it's just a dead thing buried. Nothing will come from it. And so without God's word coming to us, we're dead. But God promises that his word will do its job and it will bring forth new life in us. 
And more than that, when we're in the word, we see that it will cause us to grow. And so if we want to grow in Christian maturity, the best way to do that is to be in the word. I can't say that I know any mature Christians who aren't also people of the word, people who faithfully read the word and listen to it and study it and wrestle with it and pray it and think about it and try to live by it. So when we are in the word, we are moving from immaturity to maturity. And the last thing that the word does is it brings about maturity, what we would call fruitfulness, right? Like the seed that produces the grain that produces the bread to eat. Maturity comes from being in the word and it produces the maturity that comes when we Joyfully obey God's word. Joyfully living our lives in obedience to God. And so the word of life comes so that we can live lives in the word. And the early uh, uh, covenanters got this, question, got this when, when they asked two questions, two really important questions at the beginning of the uh, mission friends movement, which became the evangelical covenant church. And so they would always ask these two questions of each other. They would say, where is it written? And how goes your walk with the Lord? Because they saw that it's not just one or the other. Right? It's, it's about both of those questions. And we see that in Isaiah. Because it's not just about knowledge. It's about knowledge that brings a new way of living and being in the world. A way of living and being that is marked by joyful, joyful faithfulness to the word of God. And so, you know, we talked about why we do communion each and every week. Well, uh, why do we read the Bible and then listen to a sermon each and every week? As one of the, you know, central things we do in worship. Because we want to let God's word do its work. It's life-giving work in our congregation. And we claim that promise of life through the word at least once a week as we gather together to hear it read and proclaimed. And all, so many of the things that we do as a congregation are about getting in the Word. We've got lots of people who have done or are leaders in BSF, Bible Study Fellowship. We've got devos and donuts. Or Bibles and babka, depending on, on, on the Sunday and what they're serving. Uh, you know, we've got Life Group. We've got Ladies Theological Fellowship. You know, every year I recommend these daily Bible reading apps. The Advent Lent devotionals. All of those are just basically ways that we try to make sure that we are a community of Christians who are in God's word so that can do God's life-giving work in us. And of course, when we think of the word of God coming down from heaven to accomplish its purposes, and we're in Advent, we can't but help think of Jesus Christ. God's word becoming flesh, and a word that certainly did not return void, but accomplished God's purposes for what he came for. All right, so we've seen what we're invited to, a joyous feast. We've seen the character of the God who does the inviting, a God who is holy other, and and a God who sends the word to accomplish God's purposes. And so lastly, we're going to look very briefly at the nature of the celebration. And the passage ends with these words. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst in song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. Instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. And so the nature of the celebration is that it is joyful and peaceful. That's two of our Advent calendar, or two of our Advent candles covered right there. But it's more than just our own joy and peace. The celebration includes all of creation. 
The mountains are singing. The trees are clapping their hands. And so we, what we can't miss is that the Christian message is not just merely addressed to in, individuals so you know, we can go to heaven when we die, nor is it just addressed to communities of people. The, the Christian gospel is addressed to all creation. It is good news for the world that we live in. For the physical spaces and places, it's about the renewal and remaking of those as well. And so when we care for this world, we are helping it to celebrate God's everlasting covenant. And the next thing about the celebration is that it's a part of this great reversal that we saw in, in the curse of Genesis 3. Part of what happens when Adam and Eve get expelled and exiled from the garden is the ground is cursed. And, and so it produces thistles and thorns and weeds and it's hard to work. And here we see the joy that comes with the reversal of that curse. Instead of the ground growing weeds, it grows these evergreen plants like the juniper and myrtle. And the final thing, the last thing about this celebration is that it's not about us. It's about God and God's glory. Isaiah declares, this will be for the Lord's renown. And so our celebration isn't about reveling in ourselves and a glorification of ourselves. It's simply us reflecting back to God and to one another, his mercy, his love, his grace, salvation, and most of all, joy. So Advent is drawing to a close. Christ is coming and drawing near. And God's word for us today is let's get ready to party. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Please pray with me.